You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem. I'm your host, Hanok Teller. It is our great honor to invite to TFJ my mentor, uh, one of my closest, dearest friends, who has taught me so much, and everyone in Teller from Jerusalem is familiar with his monumental work, uh, Codes of Jewish Ethics, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, also a, a very, very famous New York Times bestselling author, uh, lecturer, and I don't want to say another word because we need every second we can get from him. Please tell us, Joseph, what are you up to now? First of all, it is a real pleasure to be here with you, Chanoch. I love Chanoch. We've known each other forever. And if you want to know what it means to have a devoted friend, then anybody who's friends with Chanoch Teller knows what it means to have a devoted friend. I'm now going to spend 10 more minutes embarrassing Chanoch. I'm I can't working on blushing, so thank you. <laughs> I'm working now on a book uh, tentatively entitled The Power of Moral Imagination. And what does that mean? You know, somebody asked me, what's going to make the book different from any book about chesed, you know, acts of kindness? And the reason I inserted the word imagination was very deliberate. Starting, let's say, just looking back since the beginning of, let's say, the 20th century, extraordinary advances have been made in medicine, in science, in technology, and these advances, as a rule, came about because an individual or a group of people working together collectively addressed problems that seemed to be insoluble, utilizing their entire intellectual imagination. And the results have been fantastic. We know of the advances in medicine, science, technology. When it comes to moral issues, the last 120 years have been a mixed bag. I'm not going to say that there hasn't been improvement. There has been in many areas, but it was also the bloodiest century in human history. In many ways, things either remained static or got even worse, because people rarely utilize the full flow of what I call their moral imagination. Moral imagination does not simply mean doing an act of kindness, but it means finding the way to solve a problem, to maximize the kindness, and the book largely will consist of stories that can affect people. And let me give you an example of one. I remember years ago hearing a story about Rabbi Joseph, Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik, but not the famous, very recent Rabbi Soloveitchik, but his great-grandfather known as the Beis Halevi. He was once sitting with some of his Talmidim. It was shortly before Pesach. And a man entered the room and had a shyly. He had a question to ask the rabbi. He said, Rabbi, is it permitted to use milk instead of wine at the Passover Seder? And the rabbi said to him, is this some sort of a health issue? The man says, no, I don't have money for wine. He gave the man 25 rubles and sent him on his way. His Talmidim were puzzled. And they said to the rabbi, <laughs> he, for wine, he needs like four rubles, and he could have very generous supplies. He says, don't you understand? He wanted to use milk. It means he has no money for meat. He probably doesn't have many money for anything. In other words, sometimes giving what is asked for 
or sometimes giving enough is not really enough. A friend of mine heard this story and a few days later was confronted with a situation. A woman he knew, an elderly woman, a Holocaust survivor who unfortunately had always remained poor, was friends with him and his wife and she was suffering excruciating back pains. And it had come up now a couple of times already and finally he asked her, is there no medication that could help? And she said there is, but even with the social benefits, the Medicaid, they still require $60. Later that day, he gave the woman a $1,000 check. And as he explained to his wife, who was totally supportive of his having done so, he said if she is suffering such excruciating pain and isn't spending $60 on the medicine, who knows what else she's being deprived of. But as this man told me, if I had not heard that story about Rabbi Soloveitchik, I would, of course, have bought the medicine for her. But that's what I would have done. It wouldn't have occurred to me to do that. That's the power of stories to stimulate moral imagination. The Talmudim, who said, give her four or five rubles, of course, we're also good people. But they thought, somebody asks for money for wine, you give them what they need. Sometimes you have to give people what they don't more than what they asked for. You have and to anticipate what, what could be necessary. Yes, you have to. Sometimes you can anticipate it, you know, in odd ways. But in this case, you know, he anticipated this woman's pain, and as a result, he gave her more. I'll give you another example that comes to mind. I'm working now on what I hope will be a documentary or a docudrama film about Rabarye Levine. You know, I had the zechus of writing a book about the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was a, a big manhi hador, and Rebarye was one of the very big tzaddikim. One of the hador, saints. One of the great saintly figures, right. And Rebarye was also a master at moral imagination. So he was the mashkiach ruchani, sort of the spiritual supervisor uh, at the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva in Jerusalem. He started there, I think, in the 1920s. Jerusalem at that time was quite a poor city, and the students at the yeshiva, by and large, came from pretty poor families. And there was a boy in the school that Rabarye noticed his shoes were torn. And any of you here who are listening, who have ever been in Jerusalem during the winter, know that Jerusalem winters can be quite hard, really quite hard. And certainly you can imagine the 1920s and 30s when there was much less heating. And so this boy was coming to school every day with these torn shoes. And of course, the obvious answer was, get the kid a pair of shoes. You know, have a few people or one person pay for it and the boy will get shoes. But there was an additional problem. The boy's father was very, very proud. The thought that he was, that his son was being treated as a Sadaka case would have pained him so greatly he might well have he went well have ref, he would have he would have refused the offer. Sir Varier had to exercise moral imagination. One day during recess he asked the boy to come to his office. He tested the boy on a few questions in Talmud, questions that he knew would be within the boy's grasp, and when he answered them very fluently, he said, You've just won a Talmud prize. You're, you're the, one of the best students in your class. And he then wrote two notes. 
one note to the local shoemaker that Rebarrier was arranging payment to prepare a pair of shoes for the young boy, and another note to the boy's father congratulating him on having a son who's such a budding Talmud Chacham and really bright and had won this award. Again, moral imagination. Another example I'll give. And not every example is going to be a, coming from a rabbi. So, because I want to make sure these are stories for all of us. But this one I happen to have learned from a, a person I know a bit named Chanach Teller. <laughs> and Chanach, of course, had studied with Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Auerbach, who really was a very preeminent Talmud Chacham and a preeminent man of ethics uh, in, in the last century. And he was once approached by a couple who assumed that he's probably a little more worldly than they were. They had a son who was what we would call today mentally challenged, what they used to say. You know, he was retarded. He had intellectual limitations. And they had exhausted the schools in Jerusalem, and, but there were two residential schools to which they could send him. They heard differing reports about one school. One might be more religiously observant. One might be more medically advanced. But, you know, basically, they had to make a choice. And Shlomo Zalman said, so, well, what does your son think? And the parents sort of were abashed. They hadn't even thought to consult with their son. And he said to them, you're sinning against the soul of your child. Don't you understand? He has lived every day of his life in your house. Suddenly, he's going to find himself in a strange environment. He'll feel rejected by you. He'll be very disoriented. You have to prepare him. He has to be a part of the decision. So he called the boy. He said, bring the boy up. So the parents bring the boy. He said to him, in Hebrew, what's your name? Uh, Akiva. And he then said something very surprising. He said, I am Shlomo Zalman Auerbach. I'm the greatest rabbi in the world today. Now, obviously, that sounds very odd to all of our listeners, particularly, first of all, it would sound odd coming from any rabbi, but particularly given that he was known for his great humility. From what I understand, he used to hate it when people would address envelopes to him, you know, with all these honorific titles like, uh, let alone Godel Hador, Oker Harim, Uprooter of Mountains. You know, he says the poor mailman just wants to deliver mail. He doesn't have to read through a whole uh, whole big listing. Litany. A whole litany. A whole litany, as Hanukkah puts it, and he's right. Anyway, so he then tells the boy that there are two schools. From what I remember, he told the boy that the parents should take him and he should decide between the two, From as I remember, the story, and he said, and when you decide to go, I want you to go as my shliach, my messenger, and you'll, you grew up in a house, keeps Shabbat, keeps kosher, you know, you know a lot of things that other people there might not know, so I want you to go and be an influence there, and in order to enable you to do this properly, I'm going to bestow upon you the title of smicha, I'm going to give you rabbinical ordination. It worked out that uh, one of the two schools was chosen. Over the coming years, there would be Shabbatot, Sabbaths, that the parents wanted to bring the home, boy home for, and he said he couldn't come. Why? He had a responsibility to be the rabbi there, and who had given him the responsibility? The Gadol Hador. 
That statement, which at first sounded like a bit of a brag by Shlomo Zalman, that's exactly what it had. It had the moral imagination to give this boy who otherwise would have felt that he had been sort of tossed out of his ham, otherwise would have felt humiliated, instead felt elevated. That's again an example of moral imagination. There are a lot of ways, though, to practice moral imagination. I'll give you an example. This is not a Jewish example. I read about it in a, in a textbook on ethics many years ago. How do you criticize in a way that the criticism can really bring about change? You know, most people hear the criticism. Maybe they feel bad. Maybe they don't. If they're smart, they'll act politely. But will it really induce a change? Anyway, unfortunately, as a rule, I do not like to tell anonymous stories because you never know how true it is. Uh, but in this case, I really don't have a recollection. Uh, a medical professor was teaching at a medical college, and one of the points he was making to his students was, no matter how hopeless a person's situation is, never deprive them of all hope. A student raises his hand and says, you know, Professor, we are men of science. We're not handholders. We're not clergymen. If there's no hope, I think we should be truthful with people. The professor looks at the young man and says, I think that attitude makes you unfit to be a doctor. I want you to please go downstairs to the dean's office and tell him that I recommend that you be thrown out of the school. The kid's sitting there frozen in his seat. He can't believe what he's just heard. The professor waits a minute and says, I was serious in what I said. Please leave this class right now. Please go down to the dean and tell him that I think you're unfit to be a doctor. The student has no choice. He goes. As he opens the door, the professor says to him, okay, you can sit down now. I just wanted you to experience for two minutes what it's like to be deprived of all hope. That's a, That was a good story, and you caught me there. Uh, if I may, uh, yes. Rabbi Elia Chaim Meisels was the rabbi in Lodz. Lodz is a very large city in Poland. Right. And when Friesen, Fridgen, Peppermint, Patty Knight, he knocks on the door of one of the wealthiest Jews in all of Lodz, and the rabbi sees him, and, and the, he's a very prestigious guest. He says, Rabbi, please come in. And he's standing there in the door when he wedges one door inside. He said, tell me, how's your son? He said, Rabbi, please, it's, it's cold, it's cold, it's cold. His teeth are chattering, his nose turns red, right. his ears are pink. And he says, Rabbi, please come in. We'll come to the fireplace. I'll give you a cup of tea, maybe you like some hot chocolate. How's your little boy? Rabbi, he's, f -f 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 he's fine, but please come inside. Have something, have something warm to drink. Tell me, how's your little girl, Rabbi? Please, it's he's jumping up and down trying to generate stimulation. Could you come inside? Tell me, how's your girl, Rabbi? She's fine. Could you come? It's snowing, it's sleeting, it's coming inside. I'm really free, 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 free. Tell me, are your in-laws coming to visit you again this winter? I said, Rabbi, Rabbi, I simply cannot, cannot, cannot. And the words were freezing out of his mouth faster than he could say them. He said, the Rabbi said, that's why I've come here. I want you to understand, if you cannot deal with four minutes Think about the boys in, in yeshiva who 24 hours a day, they don't have mittens to cover their hands, muffs to cover their ears. Their words of Torah hang like plumes of steam in the bathhouse. Try and imagine their plight. This you can only feel when you feel the plight of someone else. So we can tell these stories from Eastern Europe, but it's the same thing. You know, there's a girl in your class who doesn't understand the algebra, and you do understand it. She needs your assistance. This is when you feel what it's like. No one wants to feel deprived. So then you have that sensitivity, and you want to provide for others. I love it. 
that story is already, I've written the El Yechaya story. We'll compare, we'll compare our versions of it. Uh, I know, and he lived to, a, he lived actually to quite a great, ripe old age, you know, in those days. And I've always loved that story. Right. To really, empathy isn't always natural. And from what I understand, as the story ends, uh, he, the way I understood it, after this guy's like freezing, and you know, and and Rebellia Chaim is asking him all these sorts of delaying uh, questions. Yeah, questions. Right. I think you know it got. I think it reached its peak when he said, "Oh, and that cousin you had who moved away. How is he?" <laughs> now the man finally said to him, "Rabbi, why, why did you come here tonight? What do you want?" And and then he says about the people who are freezing. And the man gives a hundred rubles, which was a big contribution. And then the rabbi goes in, and they sit down to have uh, tea in front of his fireplace. And he says, "So why didn't you just ask me at the beginning?" He said, "Because if I had come right into your house at the beginning to have the tea, we would have talked about the needs of the people in the town, who the yeshiva students, and 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 poor people in general, uh, who don't have firewood and stuff. And you would have given." A nice expected donation of 10 rubles. I needed to keep you out there until you were really experiencing it yourself. And that's it. You know, so that's, again, moral imagination is to really imagine that it's happening to you. Here, I'll give you an interesting story uh, about a figure who had a lot of uh, good feelings for Jews, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt, in 1895, was the police commissioner of New York City. And there were, you know, in addition to the large migration of Jews in the late 19th century, there uh, were a large migration of other minority groups, of other groups that were minorities in America, including Germans. And there was already a tradition, a fairly strong tradition of anti-Semitism in Germany then. And the these German-Americans were bringing over an infamous anti-Semitic preacher who had a, I, I, I'm forgetting the man's name at the moment, but I, you know, Googled him. He really had a terrible reputation. And he was going to preach a series of anti-Semitic speeches in New York. Uh, and the Jews of New York, who were in 1895, relatively speaking, a smaller community, but still were a growing community, they went to the police commissioner, Roosevelt, and they appealed to him to do two things, uh, not, to, not to let the man speak, not to give him a speaking permit, and not to offer him police protection. So Roosevelt said to them, he said, I don't know if the request you're making is legal. And even if it is legal, I don't think it's wise. You'll turn this man into a martyr. Our goal should be to make this man ridiculous. And so the man came and preached his sermon, and there were 40 police protecting him, and every one of the 40 police were Jews. And... He had to give any speeches he gave was under the protection of these Jews, which made it very clear, you know, what Roosevelt, what Roosevelt thought of the man. I'll tell you one instance. Okay, and I'll f finish with this. Of one instance I read about in a book of a woman. I have the names in my book. Not everything is in front of me now. It was a book, I think, written by Lawrence Kushner of a woman who in like 1936 or 37 was still living in Germany. Jews were still permitted to have some jobs. And she's on a bus going home. 
It happened, I believe, in Munich. Uh, it was a light snowing day, and suddenly two SS officers uh, get on the bus, and they're checking everybody's papers, and it's clear that anybody whose papers reveal the, the person to be a Jew was asked to leave the bus and go on to another bus or a truck around the corner. The woman is sitting there, and tears start streaming down her eyes. The German who was sitting next to her says, why are you crying? And she said, because I don't have the papers you have. I'm Jewish. The man starts shouting at her, you stupid fool. What are you doing here? How do you go? The SS officers come over and say, what's going on here? The man says, it's my wife. She always forgets to take her papers with her. I can't stand it anymore. The SS officers laugh, leave the woman alone, and leave the bus. The woman never knew her name. Just this week, I was speaking to Benji Levine, the grandson, a grandson of her barrier, and he told me he was once with his grandfather, and somebody said to him, are you one of the Lamed Vavniks, one of the 36 righteous people who sustains the world? And Rabarye answered, yes, sometimes I am, and sometimes you are. Sometimes you're the only one who can do something. We all have to see in ourselves how we can be a Lamed Vavnik and be one of those people who can act with moral kindness and moral imagination. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you've given something for our imagination to work on and to increase. Always, Joseph, it's an inspiration. Thank you very much. I wanted to say in my introduction, not only the, the impact you've made upon me, but also the greatest philanthrope I know in the whole wide world. Okay, thank you, and uh, look forward to next week's for a new episode. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.